You know what my mother used to call me? Dangerous. You're a dangerous girl. She was right. I am dangerous. And welcome to the whole movie podcast, The Neon Demon Edition. This is the inaugural episode of a single topic podcast mini series entirely dedicated to breaking down the ins and outs and what have yous and every little specific detail of the movie, The Neon Demon. And I want to welcome my co hosts by saying, Roxana Haddadi, you you step up to the plate first and tell the folks hello, and what makes you a stakeholder in the Neon Demon conversation? Sure. Uh, this is Roxana Haddadi. I am a pop culture critic and writer, and my stake in the Neon Demon conversation is that I am fascinated by the idea of, as a woman, you're either food or you're sex. Yes. And I, yes. it's weird to say you love that idea, but I think I there's something very appealingly bleak mm-hmm. about that idea of, you know, of the female experience. And I wrote about that idea for a Brightwell Dark Room essay a couple years ago, and I'm really excited about exploring how deep that idea goes in this movie. Okay, so I'm excellent. Pumped. Excellent. And third third fellow co-host, do tell the folks at home who you are. Hello, everybody. I am William O. Tyler. I'm a um, comic creator and, and writer artist, as well as film critic. Um, and wow, Neon Demon. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Who's Zoom, I, his current Zoom background is L. Fanning walking through the mirrored catwalk entrance into Neon Demon. So it's real. So you know it's real. It is. It is. Um, this movie, I... I just have stakes all over this movie mm-hmm. because it kind of uh, blew me away in, in, in a way that I was surprised um, a director like <laughs> NWR would do. Yeah. Um, it just feels so very different from everything else he's ever done mm-hmm. um, in a good way, but also still in a very dangerous and what the hell is this way mm-hmm. as the rest of his movies. Um so yeah, I I want to get into it. <laughs> I do, and I just I find this movie so like and, and it's and I think that's part of I, I feel like I'm exactly the target simp. I get I've never used that word. I'm hoping I'm using it correctly for Refn <laughs> in the case of Neon Demon because of his sort of tabula his effort at like a tabula rasa like project yourself onto this and draw your own conclusions yeah. and whether that serves as a strength or a weakness of the film. It worked so perfectly for me. I am so captivated by the notion, by the reality of this beauty industrial complex, of this meat grinder that um, we're really unpacking a bit more in terms of like the way it was shaped, the way it shaped so many millennials um, in the in terms of like two thousands era pop culture and the blogosphere, and that just absolute like literal grist for the mill, like throw human parts in and watch it go. Um, kind of dynamic of the media and the way this movie so is so brutally detached from any emotion that may enter into that conversation and that conceit and it just gives you the sort of starkest most beautiful realization of this world at its yet ugliest and says like, well, yeah, like of course it's this beautiful. He's clearly a very Refn is clearly a very aesthetically motivated and minded individual, and the the impact of beauty, the way we process beauty, is something that's very front of mind for him and very important, and, and not in a not in a sort of less heady way. I, I would say it's, it's it's as important for me as well. Like there was this moment when I was watching this movie in the theater, 
Um, there was like two or three other people in the room. There was barely anybody. Um, and I was just, I was on the edge of my seat the entire night. I was fucking gripped. And there's this scene where it's the catwalk scene and it's the go see. And Elle is like, you know, the, the, the fashion designer asshole is just jaded by all these gorgeous, barely clothed women in front of him. And then Jesse appears and he looks up and he takes a breath and it's like he can see for the first time. And he takes this, he takes this, he inhales and he like, I think sheds a single tear and the room <laughs> laughs. Like, the few other people that were in that theater laughed, and I had, like, my hands to my chest. Just, like, I wanted to turn around and be like, this isn't for you. You don't understand. This feeling is real. It exists. Like, I was so mad at them all for not taking it seriously. And I just wanted to be like, fuck all of you. Do you think this industry exists without this being real? Like, I just wanted to scold them all. But... Uh, you know, I will tend to go on screeds, so I will stop that one for now and say that for our introduction to Neon Demon, we're beginning with the refin of it all. The Nicol the Nicholas Winding refin DNA of this film and how sort of his arc of his filmography informs what we see in this and what we think of it. And this is obviously somebody who begins with uh, the Pusher trilogy. I think it, he's he's from Denmark, right? It's Denmark. Yes. Uh, like he he's making those films out of Denmark, gritty crime films, not flashy, brutal. Mas Mikkelsen just at his most kind of raw and young and intense. Hot, very hot. Hot, so hot, hot so scary. hot, <laughs> so hot, so hot and scary, so hot. And the Bleeder and Fear X are sort of are dropped in there as well. But I feel like the the Pusher trilogy. And the movies within that time frame, I feel like there's a sort of cutoff point at Bronson where it can becomes like f much more stylized. And I feel like that sort of sends yeah. us into a present era. But like, do you guys, you know, do, do you like early Refin? Is that something with resonates that resonates for you? Or does he come to you more in his more stylish, stylish era? Hmm. I think for me, I do like his post Denmark stuff mm -hmm. better um if only because I love so much of the style is substance Same. idea of Refn I mean like I very much am a sucker for like the neon palette and the neon lights and mm -hmm. like these very blank protagonists mm -hmm. and these stories that almost reject linear narrative structure mm -hmm. um so like i love all of that shit <laughs> yep. but yep. i do think you know i think you do need something cohesively gritty and dark and sort of the idea of what is human ambition like at mm -hmm. its core i think that refin has always been intrigued by this idea of like what do our skills mm -hmm. like what we're good at like ryan gosling's drive character obviously being good at driving mm -hmm. or fighting and only god forgives or you know the catwalk and fashion and this idea of like beauty as currency mm -hmm. i think he's always been tied to this idea of like what is your utilitarian value in a world that can be very stark in that way. Yeah. But I think you only get there with sort of like an outside law crime beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think that was like, you know, the impetus for the Pusher trilogy. And I think he just keeps taking that idea like one step further with mm -hmm. every movie. Like what can you be boiled down to as your value? Mm-hmm. And what sort of access does that grant you in this world or not? I yeah. mean, who tries to take that from you, which we'll get into with this movie. But, uh -huh. you know, what do you offer? And then if you offer something, who can deny that from you? Yeah, that I that I hadn't thought of it in those terms before. And that makes so much sense. Yeah. William, what do you think? Um, I came into Refn with uh, Bronson. That was the first Same. movie of his that I saw. Um, and was kind of blown away by that. Um, but then going back to look at his earlier work, um, I, it was, the first Pusher movie didn't grip me. Yeah. Um, I remember a lot of people talking a lot about it, um, and being really into it and it getting like high praise for being a first time director mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I watched it and was like, I don't care about these characters. It's a little too, um, 
it's a, uh, I don't want to say too real, but it's a little too um, just extreme mm-hmm. in that direction that I don't want to participate in. Yeah. Um, it felt like homework. Push- it felt like homework to be watching it. Exactly. I was like, I'm watching this because I'm going to watch them all. Exactly. Um, Pusher 2 was complete opposite of that. Um, I think it's because of uh, the first Pusher just felt so, so much like um, Ruffin just wanting to be gritty and wanting wanting to be like, you know, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. Um, Pusher 2 actually had um, some sympathy in it with, with the Tawny character. And I think that that was the starting point for me noticing that Ruffin kind of uses um, film as his drag. Um, mm. And we'll, we'll get into this mm. a little bit more, like actually with Neon Demon, because yeah. it works more perfectly with that. But um, he, he's, he's portraying all of these kind of toxic situations, toxic characters. Um, but there's usually a character within that that kind of has this um, marginalized perspective from everyone else mm-hmm. um, in one way or another. Um, and I think that that's the character that he kind of identifies himself with. Mm. Um, and I, I find that very, very interesting. Um, and I, I think that his early work, uh, you can see that growing more and more with each um, subsequent film. An interesting thing to me about him is how he's such a, like, he's such a masculine presence in, 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 with, like, with his films. <clears throat> there's, there's such a collision in the more recent stuff where he has this sort of hyper-masculine either ethos or, or straight-up protagonist set against these worlds that are so beautiful and so just, like, these sort of gorgeous music video aesthetics that throw bisexual lighting over this, like, hyper-masculinity. But he has expressed, uh, as another thing that we're going to get into, he has expressed uh, as a young man growing up, he didn't necessarily identify with the men around him, and he aligned more with women and appreciated more effeminate things like dolls and... Um, you know, I, I feel like William, you can help us dig specifically into his alignment with Elle Fanning, um, when, (laughs) when having, when featuring her, having her feature in Neon Demon and there's like, and, and yet his movies for including, uh, brutality and sex and at times sexual brutality, they feel almost sterile to me. Like, I, I don't like, there's certain kinds of movies. Like I watch an Eli Roth movie and I feel afraid in that, I feel unsafe in that way. Like, violence is going to be done to women. It's going to be creepy. It's going to be, like, lewd and lascivious. And it's going to scare me. And it's going to feel exploitative. Um, his movies, to me, almost have this asexual quality. Despite, oh, yeah. like, the sensuality imbued to many of them. And and certainly the sort of, like, trafficking in, in humans, particularly women as sort of things, as, as objects for these, you know, perhaps more brutal male figures to take advantage of. I don't find a very sexual energy in really anything he does. It, it's almost like he's a, a floating above the subject matter so high. It's almost like it takes human sentiment out of it at times. Like they, they which for better or worse, depending on how you enjoy them, can make them feel like museum pieces. And sometimes it works for me, and sometimes it doesn't. Even within his filmography, but I think that like I, it surprises me so much that there can be so much like hetero mask energy coming off something that doesn't include sexual domination and like virility as a companion theme that is alongside it. And I think what's funny is like, as you were saying that, like I could be totally off base with this, but interestingly, I don't think of them. I don't think of his latter stage movies as super hetero movies. And I could, you know, and, and this could open this up to something different. But, like, I think of them as very violent, obviously, because Mm -hmm. I think he is, like, enraptured with, like, how to stylize violence. Mm -hmm. But when I think about the protagonists, like, I don't necessarily think of them as, like, these super aggro guys. Like, Mm -hmm. I think both of Gosling's characters in both Drive and Only God Forgives are very fragile and vulnerable. And so I think that they, we watch them do very brutal things, but I always think of the drive scene where he pushes Carrie Milligan's body behind his yeah. in the elevator mm-hmm. and is like protecting her. And only in God, in, in only God forgives, it's really him 
trying to figure out if I'm remembering correctly that like his brother has killed someone, has killed yeah. a woman, and then his mother is getting involved and he is almost making a sort of self-sacrifice by getting involved in the situation. So I think a lot of the times to me, it seems like he's less interested in straightforward masculinity and more interested in the idea of like, what do we expect from masculine heroes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how do you like subvert those things? And then I think that's what makes Neon Demon so interesting is I think he's thinking about it from like the flip side of that of like, what do we anticipate from female protagonists? Yeah. And how do you flip that? And like, are these people, are these women acting like men or are mm -hmm. they acting as you would expect a woman would? So I think a lot of times he's like interested in more about like gender identity as a performance mm -hmm. and like what are the expectations of being a male character versus being a female character and you're right they're not sexual like i think that they are you know drive is almost very pure in yeah. how hustling's character feels about yeah. Carrie mulligan he feels like, almost like a like a, he feels more like almost like a divine presence put into the story as opposed yeah. to something human right which be problematic when we talk all the time about like women being whores or angels and yeah. like that can be complicated as well but i don't you're right i don't feel like this weird sexual malevolence coming no. off him like i don't feel like nick pizzolato energy you know <laughs> yeah. like i don't like i don't yeah. feel that i don't feel like he is punishing women because he thinks they should be punished like that's never what i think refin is doing right um, it doesn't it doesn't feel like that's part of the fantasy right even right. as much as some of these works are so fantastical and even as they might revolve around bodies in, in the way that specifically neon demon does it it, it, it revolves around like women people as object and and they're even like because you have the the two key male care well i guess three key male characters in neon demon with the fashion designer and the pseudo boyfriend and then the photographer and all of them the the, the two men of the industry are in positions of power they sort of dictate the rise and fall of these women's careers but they are each made to feel and presented to sort of enslaved by the power that say a Jesse has they are they are enslaved by the beauty all around them and they are sort of helpless before it and they they respond to it and sort of answer its siren call and it is the thing sort of guiding their actions so it, it presents them as like the women are subordinate in like in their meat space to the men but the men are subordinate to the power that these women allegedly have um with their aesthetic value that is given to them by a patriarchal society so it's a big like snake constantly yeah it's tail. like a bit yeah it's a big ouroboros and then i don't think you can leave out keanu either oh agreed yeah you're totally yeah. right i was gonna bring him up <laughs> please yeah. do please do. william yes. do you want to talk about Ta keanu? yes tell us do about it. keanu in this well i i find um Ruffin to be very um smart and manipulative mm. of his audience mm. um and and especially with those four four male characters in neon demon they all are presented in a specific way to make you feel that um they're going to have a specific place in the story mm -hmm. and then they all end up having kind of a different place in the story um part of that is casting hollywood beloved actor keanu reeves yeah in a role way against his type yeah um because you see keanu and you think oh it's keanu we love keanu <laughs> and like way um, under his billing it's practically like cameo right. sized right totally totally this is like and, bad badge then, keanu yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and he he just turns out to be um a character that you do not trust that you would not associate with keanu at all uh -huh. um and i think that was very smart on reference part to cast that way I'm just being friendly. Just want to make sure you're getting something out of this deal. Because if you're not, got plenty of the girls here. Take a peek in room 214 if you get a chance. Rented this week to a girl from Sandusky, Ohio. Runaway, 13 years old. Real Lolita shit. Well, then I, I, it's, it's interesting to me that you say, Roxana, about like the vulnerability, because. That that's, that's extremely true, and I like you see, 
so like even into like Bronson you see this character that is so vain and insecure about how how remembered he's going to be and Mm -hmm. he's this brute but he is also somewhat of a cartoon character and he seems to he's concerned with his legacy over everything else and then you have even in Valhalla Rising with Moss Mickelson he's he's this silent killer who is tender and and protective and what like I wondered if you guys had any as I as I sent you my insane chart that I made um I I did at one time this was going to be for a story I'm pretty sure it wired and it never nothing ever really happened of it but I I watched every Refn movie through Neon Demon, transcribed every word from the main protagonist, and divided the words spoken by minutes of screen time, (laughs) (laughs) and came up with a words per minute average of Nicholas Winding Refn protagonists in his movies, um... He, That's commitment. Yeah, it was, I mean, <laughs> in certain movies, it was really easy because they barely fucking say anything. That's true. Right. <laughs> but, you know, as it can be a strength or or a weakness of, of what people, you know, perceive from his storytelling, the the notion of aesthetic sort of over over exposition. Like, how how does that, where has that worked for you guys and where has it not worked for you guys in kind of ref and movies? It, maybe it has worked every time. Like, I, I don't know, but... Well, this kind of, um, going back to what I was saying earlier about him kind of using film as a drag, Mm. um, I feel like his filmography has gotten, um, queerer over the years. Like every, everything, every film has been a little more queer than the previous. Mm -hmm. Um, and Only God Forgives definitely is queer in a sense that it just doesn't fit into that kind of, um, narrative that we're used to. It just, it, it, there's something still captivating about it but it's it it's like you said it's kind of a drain it's kind of a strain to get through um and i i recently gearing up for this i recently went uh to watch too young too old to die oh he okay Um, yeah yeah and it just talk about a strain (laughs) where there's just like a massive pause between every single line um that was I haven't finished it. I have four episodes left and I just was like, I need to take a break. I can't. <laughs> it's not because I also was trying to binge it and it's not a binge. Oh, you right, cannot binge. Right. Yeah. Um, I also just don't find Miles Teller super compelling. Like I no. like him well enough to a certain degree. Yeah. But I was just like, mm, Miles is your guy, huh? Okay. <laughs> well, that's... He feels very much like he was a stand-in for Ryan Gosling. Like, yeah. For some reason, Ryan couldn't be right. there. Um, Baby yeah. Goose was busy. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I mean, and that that truly is... Like, he's He's done so well with casting for so much of his career. Where, like, you you do have... I mean, those actors are laying it all on the line in the Pusher trilogy. And, and to see, like, again, young, raw Mickelson... Um, in those movies particularly and then he found he found a sort of perfect vessel in Ryan Gosling somebody whose stillness is just abs can is just generally absolutely so compelling and somebody who's so comfortable with it like not that yeah. you know it's any actor's job to, to be comfortable in the character but you can feel a comfort in the stillness of Ryan Gosling that just works and and Elle Fanning I think was I think she was truly tremendous in in the role yeah. of Jesse and there is such a she does such a good job channeling that coming of age awkwardness in these mm-hmm. very adult situations and sort of beholding the spectacle of everything around her i think too she does a very good job with that same kind of stillness with chaos and and you know again the incredible gorgeous mise-en-scene all around her and i think like as we've all talked about like Refn, I think, has just become more and more observational, which I yeah. think is fine. Like, that mm-hmm. works for me or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, his protagonists very much are watching everything that's happening around them. And I think acting only when it is 
completely required mm -hmm. and i think like yeah. that also is what makes only god only god forgives sort of feel like a slog and you're right like it is kristen scott thomas's movie and it <laughs> should be i think she's purposefully the alpha of that movie. yeah yeah and i think like it is at least for me i found it very intentional to have gosling go from drive when he is to a certain degree very in charge gets mm -hmm. behind the car can do whatever he wants to only god forgives where he is purposefully it feels like by everyone around him knocked down a peg yeah and so i think like it almost feels like those protagonists are very much in conversation with each other in terms of one being sort of confident in who he is and what he can do and the other one being like oh shit actually i'm not and so like i like that dichotomy mm -hmm. um and it almost feels like neon demon combines those approaches into one yeah. movie mm -hmm. because you have like the ascendancy of jesse and then ultimately like the cut down of her ascendancy mm -hmm. and then like the fallout from that mm -hmm. and so i feel like refin to me feels very interested in like the upswing and the downswing but mm -hmm. sometimes not the like plateau of like what right. existing can be um and i can understand how that can be polarizing for some people mm -hmm. but i don't know man the stillness usually mm -hmm. is where i'm at <laughs> 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 like i usually like that very much and i do wish that he and gosling would work together again but baby goose is off getting those netflix checks yeah so. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 and I, this is a quote that I shared with you guys in a sort of prep doc that was put together for this, where I tried to, I, I interviewed him once for just like this book of movie posters that he, it's from his personal collection of movie posters. Um, I think the book was called The Act of Seeing, and he just had them assembled in a coffee table book, and I talked to him about it for when I was working at Wired, and I've always tried to, since that time, think of any movie I saw of his in the context of this quote um, and it was, it's very helpful for me just in processing him where he says, quote, personally, I think the worst thing is giving the audience what they want to see, because in a way it's almost disrespectful. These people are here to give you their precious time. You should really take them on an odyssey. And the best way to do that is to give them what they don't expect. And I do think he does tend to, I do think he does tend to fulfill that mandate in each thing he makes. And I, I think William, what you say about, and I agree with the the queering of his films over time. My I do consider Neon Demon to be a piece of queer cinema, and predominantly because of structurally so. I think that it takes the way we are, are particularly like our you know Americanized brains and how we we see movies put out from the Hollywood system mostly like the way a linear story is supposed to go, the way it's supposed to travel, and it screws with the form. It, it screws with the way yeah. you're meant to understand how storytelling progresses and. It screws with the way, like, you expect from exposition and dialogue and the the volume of those things. And I think that's a really interesting space to play in. And I think the I think the least queer things about Neon Demon are the overtly gay things we see. Like the preposterous necrophilia uh, with Jenna <laughs> Malone and the corpse that she's making up in the morgue. And then, like, the gorgeous, but again, still, to me, asexual shower scene mm -hmm. with with abby lee and and bella heathcote bathe you know bathing blood off of themselves as they stand right. poised just so in a way you would never comfortably <laughs> stand in a shower to like have you revealed and yet strategically hidden as this camera travels up the length of your six foot fucking body abby lee your my giraffe God. body my yeah. god <laughs> just inconceivable yeah. like the the least gay things to me about that movie are the fact of those like allegedly sexual presentations of women because they truly like the 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 necrophilia is just fucking bananas and it just feels like some weird nightmare scenario it's so dispassionate and and desexualized it's just like oh that was crazy do and you not do you not spit on your partners like all the time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> only if they're dead really only if they're only if they're dead yeah i interviewed him once for drive um at some like ritzy hotel in dc and i just remember like he was like the nicest politest european <laughs> man just seemed like a very nice guy and i was like oh okay i i i see what the appeal is i too would go in battle for this man <laughs> but yeah it is interesting always seeing that sort of like everybody seems very ride or die 
mm-hmm. in terms of like his visions. And I think it's because like they are incredibly precise. Like I think yeah, the only thing true. that we have sort of been so so on in this conversation is only God forgives and like the Miles Teller Amazon bit. Yeah. But like <laughs> but like two questionable projects in like an entire career is true. like a pretty solid yeah. run. Mm-hmm. Um and so I feel like, I, I don't know, I mean, Jordan, this was a question you wanted to ask, right? Like, is any of this camp? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he, totally. He, there, there's, um, I will say specifically the quote that I, I put in the doc uh, for just con- context of it. This was when Neon Demon came out. There was a profile of him in Rolling Stone. And he's talking about it. He says, it's a camp movie. Um, he says with a laugh. I took all my love for vulgarity and whatever other Italian Renaissance art form you can imagine, and I relished in it. I want to make a, I wanted to make a horror film. I wanted to make a melodrama. I wanted to make suspense. I wanted to make humor. I wanted to make existentialism. I wanted to make science fiction. You name it, it's all in there. And I love the consideration that he, like, I love the consideration of Iglos Winding Refn for camp. Being like, I want to, it's a camp film. Like, just yeah. the, I wish I could have just heard his voice say that and say that quote <laughs> with the audio. I don't really, I, I won't pretend to understand camp. Like, every time I think I do, I'm like, no, I'm saying this wrong. I'm going to sound like a fucking idiot. Like, do, like, do you guys feel like, are you like, yeah, no, he's, I'm completely with him on this. You're like, no, he's kind of full of shit. Like, are you, because I, I, I think I'm with him, but I don't know if I understand the term camp fully. So I can't <laughs> claim intellectual I'm, superiority I'm completely... there. I am completely with him on this. Okay, um, great, great. I feel like uh, we were talking about the querying of his movies. I feel like the turning point with Bronson, mm. um, in addition to the the stylistic stuff, was also his work becoming more of a heightened reality as opposed yeah. to um, that gritty reality. Yeah, because um, Bleeder and, and Fear I, X I, are similarly stripped down too. Like that whole chunk of yeah. time. You're right. So I, I think with Bronson, he starts to get into um, this um, theatricalness. Um, mm-hmm. And and that automatically is going to give way to some camp slipping in. I mean, things that are <laughs> maybe shouldn't be funny that you're going to be like, okay, that's that's a little too bizarre. I have to laugh at that. <laughs> yeah. um, that, you know, that kind of starts with Bronson. And it's uh-huh. in a lot of his work, I maybe not so much Drive because Drive is so pure like you were saying um but a lot of his work after bronson has that theatricality to it i mm-hmm. mean uh tom hardy i went into into that movie just wanting to see tom hardy because i thought he was hot oh god but was not expecting <laughs> was not expecting to see i was expecting all the ultra violence but was not expecting to see those uh narrative moments of him um in clown makeup the uh, one man show, like vignettes of that show. movie, are my favorite parts of Bronson. I right. and that's some yeah. that's like some of my favorite Hardy of his entire career are those exactly. just over the top, like you said, clown moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and, and you know one of them in particular, he's even performing as a woman, um, mm-hmm. going back and forth, uh, playing the male and the woman in that um, that scenario. Mm-hmm. Listen. Nursey, I just want to know when my trial is and when I head back to the slammer, right? Wrong, Mr. Peterson. Now, let's not play silly buggers, eh? I'll just have to pop you in the body with one of my special potions. Mm. And and that kind of stuff is camp. Um, mm-hmm. And then when you get to, by the time you get to Neon Demon, I think that camp is so... Um, in his grasp, in in Refn's grasp, that he can nail it without you really even realizing that it's there. <laughs> um, it just it, it starts to just come so natural to him um, that stuff like um, anything with Abby Lee. I mean, she's so anything with Abby amazing. Lee, hilarious, she's so amazing, and <laughs> wonderful. That role. Um, yeah, she's so. But good. but the fact that you can get so many different um, emotions and feelings across, like her her feeling pain and hurt over whatever uh you know that audition mm-hmm. moment but then at the same time um her throwing the the um vase at the glass yeah. and shattering it it's so heightened and over the top mm-hmm. um that it 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 falls into camp and it's wonderful i absolutely love it i think I that can... refin does 
Go ahead. Oh, Jordan. no, continue. I was just going to fucking throw a toss off line that I delight in in Neon Demon. So you go. No, ahead. no, please. No, no. Do it. And then we'll do. No, it. I just I like that that diner scene where it's the models and it's and it's Jenna Malone and they're having their quote unquote having breakfast. And just that yeah. the whole existence of of Gigi, of Bella's character, just being this android performance of a human being. Like she says, she's the bionic woman that her plastic surgeon calls her. And she has the server read off the entire list of specials. And Abby Lee just with so much hate in her eyes just looks at her and just goes, you're not going to eat it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they work so hard to memorize them. <laughs> I love that exchange so much. And I think like my, you know, like my grasp of camp is not nearly as strong, but like the way that I always think about it is like Refn is playing with archetypes and like mm -hmm. these like very like specific icons that we expect with like whatever array of stereotypical qualities we expect. Right. So like you would expect like a very masculine hero figure like Ryan Gosling's driver mm -hmm. to like act as he does. But would you also expect him to like play with the kid and, mm -hmm. you know, and like have these moments that are very tender. And so I think like, he's always like building up characters to then like subvert them and have them do the thing that you wouldn't expect them to do. And like William said, a lot of that manifests in these moments that are so hyper real that they mm -hmm. slip into absurdity. Because, like, yeah. so much of Neon Demon is a little bit absurd. Absolutely. <laughs> a Absolutely. lot of it. The definitive switch in Jesse's heel turn when she comes off the runway and she just, like, opens drapes and suddenly she's standing <laughs> in a fucking doorway with, like, a Norma yeah. Desmond borderline entrance with, like, like the deep neck cleavage bearing glitter, mm -hmm. glitter tank top. And it's like, oh, Jesse's a bad guy now. Hey, guys, did you know that Jesse's a bad guy now? It is yeah. so fantastic. And just yeah. watching her <laughs> sneer in the restaurant afterward the entire time, like, she went from, she went from angel to whore in fucking a second. One second flat. It's like, all right, The neon yes. demon got her. Yeah, it got her. <laughs> went inside. <laughs> and it's almost why, like, it's almost why to me, like, Keanu and, mm -hmm. like, Gina Malone's character and, like, the model characters are almost, like, more pure in what their ambition is. Like, mm -hmm. they don't have transformative moments for me. Like, yeah. they're ruled by, like, their id and, like, libido and, like, all these other, like, very base qualities from the beginning. But again, that does make for moments that, like, slip from being scary into being sort of funny. And so, yeah. like, the yeah. only very scary moment for me in that movie is the, like, hotel room being held at knife point by Keanu yeah. yes. like breathing walls type of situation but even that has like the quality and like the fabric of a nightmare mm -hmm. and so like yeah, I just think he's unreality moment in the entire exactly movie. yeah and so I just think like he's so good at sliding in between these like different senses and how the world around you can sort of like infect you and then it becomes this like weirdly codependent sort of relationship mm -hmm. so i don't know if that's camp <laughs> but i do know <laughs> yeah. it's something that he does very well i think in pretty much everything again except for the miles teller show yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if if that's the kind of thing that Refn is also trying to tackle with um with having a, a show that moves so slow specifically uh -huh. oh. like trying, trying to regain that attention span from us. Um, I, I, I feel surprised. like there has to be some sort of purpose. There's, you're not just doing this just to do this, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so There is a reason, isn't there? <laughs> Please, well, I God. That, I think that the, the notion of subversion is, is crucial. And, and I, I think that, that from the first thing you said, Roxana, about the, the notion of like, these, you know, by one interpretation, very mask, you know, characters and films actually are, these are very sensitive, insecure, sort of tender leads um, in these surprising ways. The, the ways in which it's such, um, so many, the stories revolve so much around like brutality and domination. And yet like the domination of, of women um, and, and sexuality is, is kind of divorced from these stories. And I think in Demon, 
having these archetypes as you do, like, you know, the the, the recent wonderful Tavi Gevinson essay where she spoke about sort of the Framing Britney documentary and how what she didn't like about it was that the conversation starts and stops at agency so often with women. Like, well, did they have agency? You've taken their agency from them when you have young and vulnerable girls, specifically young and vulnerable people, the notion that like, you know, well, as long as they have agency, they're okay. It's like, well, how much agency can you have when you're 15? And this right. girl, again, she was a girl, you know, she'd newly 18. She had run Rookie Magazine. She was a celebrity and an entrepreneur already. And she has a photographer in her childhood bedroom at the age of 18. And he's not particularly strong arming her to do anything, but she and how she had internalized what was desirable for her to do and what was in the desirable way for her to pose and dress she styled herself in a way where she looks back and is like, that's uncomfortable. Like, that was what I thought people wanted to see for me. But the way I'm holding my lips open and the way I'm turning my body, that's actually kind of exploitative. But I had internalized so much of the world around me telling me to be a certain way and telling me what my value was as a girl as in this world that I... Like, in a way, agency wasn't available to me in that age because I was too young to understand the ways in which I had been sort of inculcated by the mm -hmm. landscape around me. And so you see these characters in Neon Dean who are so much, the women are so much a product of the world around them. They are, they are sort of forged into these archetypes by the incredible pressures put around them, like forcing the carbon to become diamonds and fuck you, we're going to throw you away if you don't. And Jessie, who you see as sort of the antidote to that, like she arrives, but she too, as we, you know, learn throughout the progression of her story, the only character that really has a progression, as you said, um, you, that she too, like, you are a dangerous girl, Jesse. My mom always told me you're a dangerous girl. She had also internalized that. She had also been right. receiving, just because she was like fresh off the bus from somewhere in the Midwest, doesn't mean that those external forces had not shaped her in, in that same exact way that it had shaped Gigi in the way that it had shaped Sarah. And then you have these men who... They're meant to be, I think we're meant to sort of identify them as the villains, but they're not really ever doing anything to the women as bad as what the women are doing to each other. And then you have Carl Glusman's character, who kind of is this weird two adult protector boyfriend of Jesse, who like sort of immediately adopts her slash start dating her when she gets into LA. And it's like, what's your aim here? And we're meant to right. kind of, I think, clock him as some sort of white knight. Like he's going to be the thing that steps in and like defeats the evil for her or makes her see that there's a better way. But in the end, he's just some ineffectual sap who like mm -hmm. can't stand up, who can't, who cannot handle Jesse when she comes into sort of her dark power. What are you doing here? What are you? Is that what you want? You want to be like them? When she has her, like, the witch moment where she decides she's going to live deliciously and fuck right. everybody around her. <laughs> like Signs that, that soul over. Yeah, yeah, she signs it over. She says she likes the taste of cheese and she wants the world that's going to bring that <laughs> to her. And he ends up just being this kind of dope who doesn't, want her when she's not the angel anymore and when she becomes something too much the whore it pushes him away and she has these you know fashion designers and photographers kind of fawning after who are ominous as presences but are sort of become like her little lapdogs because she is the it she is the thing and so it is like it, it's it's constantly you're constantly having to sort of recalibrate who you're who you trust in that kind of movie yes and the people that you think at least with like a, a, a Gigi and a Sarah you don't trust them from the jump so it's like, mm -hmm. all right, I'm never going to trust you. But the ones that it does give you those little breadcrumbs for maybe you can follow the trail with them, it ends up, they all lead to dead ends anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think they all lead to dead ends anyway. And then I think because the movie swerves into that supernatural direction, mm -hmm. I think it does then force the question back on you, which is like, everybody was sort of complicit in this. Mm -hmm. Are you all complicit in this? Mm -hmm. Because, like, you were there and, like, you watched her transformation and exactly. you watched the the blood-soaked photo shoot and you watched her get nude for this older photographer. And, like, it's funny, like, we talked about the sense, at least for myself, like, I remember being very anxious while watching this and then at a certain point oh, being yeah. like, oh, thinking to myself, like, oh, like, well, nothing happened to her. And then thinking again, like, <laughs> yeah, it did. Yeah. 
Yeah, like, yeah. yeah it did. You know, like Seriously. nothing happened to her in that like right. She wasn't like raped, like to take it to mm-hmm. like the extreme of where these movies often go. Yep. I should go before I meet her runs out. I don't think you should be alone with him. He seemed fine to me. That's not what I'm saying, Jesse. Like, she wasn't physically sexually assaulted or harassed or whatever, uh-huh. or blah, blah, blah. But, like, all of the factors that have shaped her probably from that moment in childhood when somebody told her, hey, you're pretty. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. that sort of stuff is, like, transformational and traumatic in its own way. And so it's mm-hmm. been interesting, Jordan, like you said, like, post Britney documentary like all the different ways we've been sort of having to grapple with like when do you as a person become entertainment to somebody else like all aspects of you because like Mm -hmm. we have all these discussions about like being a public figure and like what that means or whatever but like everybody in real life isn't a public figure like you're Mm -hmm. just a person living your life but to like but to somebody you are probably representative of something and emblematic of something. And I think that like, you know, I think Refn is very much playing with that idea of like, you might think you're nobody, Mm -hmm. but to somebody else, like you possess a sort of currency that they want. Mm -hmm. And so then when you become somebody, how does that change? Mm -hmm. And I think he's really interested in that idea between like that divide between like you're someone and you're no one and when does that happen and then how do other people react to you mm-hmm. after that moment i think that's something that he's really concerned by yeah i love that wow Me too. That was great. <laughs> i love that thanks guys i'm gonna i'm gonna call it good i'm gonna take <laughs> off <laughs> like the 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 with the you know with William what you were saying like the kind of cinematic drag and the talking about the the queerness of the film and like this notion adding in the notion too of like oh nothing happened to her like these ways in which exploring that question in really unconventional manners and ways in which that force you to extricate the literal of what you're seeing on screen from the implications and the voyeurism of how you are participating in it as a viewer, where you can be like, wow, I can't believe he fucking did that. It's like, I can't believe we're all fucking doing this guys. I can't believe we're all fucking doing this. And when you, when you, when you, I think when you bring a queer audience into this and, and the ways in which a sort of queer lens filters the world, I think they're, with with queer folks with marginalized folks with women there is a greater awareness of all the ways in which something can have been done to you um that isn't so literal well it's not like he touched her well it's not like he hit her it's not like it's not like he raped her and so much of that being a cis white male reaction to gradations of violence done to people that are not them this movie puts on display so many ways in such beautiful tableaus that things can be done like if it ends differently for Jesse, she like she potentially becomes Gigi or she becomes Sarah. And she's the person sitting in the diner fucking probably four years from now because the shelf life is short. In fact, like two years. Like two, when yeah. she's 18. Like yeah. the, the whole yeah. mini scene with Christina Hendricks just like, we're going to say you're 19. Oh, like, Christina <laughs> Hendricks is so good in this. This whole cast was so good <laughs> so in this. So good. So good. Oh, Christina Hendricks has talked about being on the receiving end of those scenes. So again, perfect casting, as William talked about with Keanu. Mm-hmm. Perfect mm-hmm. cast of like taking a nugget of something we expect mm-hmm. and giving you the inverse of it and making you grab with the ugliness of that. Like, great shit. A thing I'm so obsessed with, and and it it, it comes in. It, it's I'm glad to see people engaging in it so much from like with catalyzed around like the Britney doc and and coming after the Paris doc in the way that it has. Um, the notion of entitlement because of visibility, like you said, every, like not everybody's a public figure, but if you are any semblance of public, the way that even a few people can glom onto you and sort of project onto you, have an expectation of you, the way that visibility 
equate like visibility translates to people being entitled to you to you in some way to your body to your time to your thoughts and the more visible you become the more entitled to you they are and the less right you have to push back and say I don't want to talk about that I don't have to engage in like what but I can see you but you're famous but you're public but you're a celebrity and when you become the more famous you become and the more beautiful you are because being beautiful is a beacon the more it becomes an entreaty to anyone around you who seeks to take advantage of your time. And a Christina Hendricks is a perfect fucking example of that. Like the idea of, and, and I, I've been watching so much 2000s horror lately and, and watching a lot of like 90s, like erotic thrillers, the idea of someone like a Denise Richards, like to just mm. live your life in this world as a 19 year old Christina Hendricks, as a 19 year old Denise Richards, I can't imagine what it's like to go to the fucking store. Like, yeah. I am a solid get out of bed five, and I am super happy about that. There is, like, the ceiling goes higher if you put a team behind me, but listen, like, we're working. These are the raw materials here, <laughs> and I have absolutely no problem with that. I have no, no complaints. I'm not an invisible person in this world, but the idea of being extraordinarily visible is, like, Oh, the idea of it is cool as like a tourism thing. It's like, oh man, that would be neat to feel for a week. And then the idea of it being inescapable and all the things incumbent with that and all the sort of sympathy that gets taken from you as a result of the privileges that put you in that position. What a fucking dilemma that is. And then you have a Christina Hendricks who's like, yes, I'm going to take this role where I'm going to play the casting agent and I'm going to age up the teenage girl and I'm going to be the vessel of perpetuating this exact thing that I have been on the abusive end of before. Like, what an agreement by all of these women in this movie to be like, yeah, I'll take Neon Demon. I want to make that movie. <laughs> like, holy, yeah. like, I if I worked with any of, the, if I had worked with any of those women in the past and done anything wrong to them and saw Neon Demon, I'd be like, fuck 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 like shield yeah. my eyes <laughs> oh my god I, I did this like I'm the demon of course those people might not be having those kind of moments of reckoning with themselves by virtue of putting themselves in that position in first place but who knows I'm not them but yeah just like the the I love a meta casting and this movie's exploitation of that it like it, yeah. taking advantage of that is just it makes my heart sing yeah, it, it allows all of them to kind of take ownership of those situations. And 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 uh, I, I think that w watching the Neon Demon um, audio commentary with uh, mm. Refn and Elle Fanning, uh, I became aware that he's very collaborative. And I think mm. that Neon Demon is um, the success that it is because he allowed um, these women to come in and help dictate how this story was going to be told. Uh -huh. um, he allowed um, Jenna Malone to practically create her whole character. Mm. Um, Abby Lee was there as a consultant to show, like, yep. this is exactly what this world is like, mm -hmm. because she was a supermodel before being an actress. Um, and a lot of what Elle Fanning did also was uh, very collaborative. So it's I think that, you know, the querying of his movies over time, I love that he's ended up, <clears throat> excuse me, with a, a film like Neon Demon that is mm -hmm. so uh, woman-centric. Yeah. Um, and, and that he's he's putting himself in it, but also letting these women come in and and it's very collaborative and they create something that is... he. I don't think he could have done this on his own. Um, and you're absolutely right. I, I think he's, he's very smart and he could do something great on his own, but... Um, <laughs> But but it wouldn't feel the same way that this feels, which is um, it's, it's there's something magical about it. So there let's is. ask the question then. Yes, Jordan, do you want to ask the question? Does Refn hate women? Does <laughs> like like I I've thought, I've I've like I think like this movie, like you said, he couldn't have done it alone, and I think the fact that he invited the women that he brought into this movie to be so intimately involved in how it was presented to me is the the clincher if somebody was arguing to me that he does hate women I would be like no because I think he knew that he couldn't tell this story with the kind of savage beauty that it needed to embody without actually talking to the stakeholders in it without yes. actually drawing from the stakeholders in it to make it its most complete possible creation because he gives a great blank slate he gives a great sort of art piece to work in and it's like he sort of gave them the brushes 
and was like, I want to tie it all together, but I want you guys to paint this picture for me because I can't actually do that. And he clearly very smartly cast this movie to know exactly what kind of stakeholders in that conversation he did want to have as collaborators. Like you have Elle Fanning who had been working in, in genre quite a bit up to, she has a very eclectic career, even up to the point of Neon Demon in her life. But she think she either turned 18 while she was making the movie or like as the yeah. movie was coming out. So this was her first kind of, you know, legally grown up role. And I, it was, yeah. it was such a, she was the, she is the sort of most Disney princess looking young actress that we <laughs> yeah. have. Yeah, I mean, like, she literally she is was a Disney princess. princess. Yeah, and yeah. fucking yeah. became Aurora. Like, she became Sleeping Beauty. She yeah. is the most, like, what is one of my favorite quotes of all time was Angelina Jolie talking about how when she met Elle Fanning for the first time when they were coming together for Maleficent, Elle Fanning was so excited to meet her, she ran her down in the hallway, hug-tackled her, and, Elle, and Angelina Jolie described it as being hugged by 10,000 gorgeous, adorable bunnies. Oh, I remember that quote. Yes. yes. And I was like, yes, yes, that is exactly the persona of Elle Fanning. She's 10,000 gorgeous, adorable bunnies overtaking you. And so it seems like he he listened. Like he was a great collaborator. And then he took these things and the final product of the movie really reflected the fruits of that collaboration. And it wasn't just like decorative ornamental notes he invited these women in to make something that i think maybe only could have been could could it only have been a man who actually directed neon demon like did there need to be an inherently sort of masculine awareness of chauvinism to be like no this is this is how it is this is what men want this is sort of what the lizard brain demands this is I am the mind of the machine that I'm going to build beautifully for this movie. And then I'm going to invite my women stars in to be collaborators in this to tell me about like the real emotional impact side of it. But then I'm going to so dispassionately put it forward that it's only the coldness and the cruelty, but also it gives that beautiful sheen over the top that invites you in and forces you to be a voyeur and does that thing where it makes you complicit because it's just so stunning. You can't turn away. Like, I think it kind of had to be made by a man, actually, to be so intensely polarizing in the way that it is. But I think the polarization underscores, actually, it's feminism at its core. Like, (laughs) for me, the contradiction of the movie is the thing that makes it most identifiable to me as something powerful and a real commentary. A real take-it-as-it-is commentary by virtue of just taking, putting the thing on the plate in front of you and saying, here it is. I'm, yeah. I'm truly doing nothing to alter the presentation of this to give you my, like, I'm not giving you my opinion on it. I'm clearly an aesthet. I'm obsessed with beauty. But, like, right. yes, which is what makes me the stakeholder to tell this story in all of its hideous glory. So, I, for me, he doesn't. And I would, I would fight someone, I think, who said that he did. I think I'd fight them. I think I'd be ready to fight it. Uh, <laughs> Refn gave you the eyeball, and you were like, I will eat it. Thank you. I will yes. eat the eyeball! <laughs> I'll eat the eyeball. Fuck yeah. I can't say I would. I mean, yeah. looking, looking, god damn it, that shot of Abby Lee on the couch, like face on the cushion, yes. her yes. blue eyes just radiating out because of the blue behind her. If you're like, you can be Abby Lee if you eat the eyeball, I'd be like, oh my god, this is really hard. Like, it's an eyeball. <laughs> Maybe. And Bella's dead, but so. Look at her. Yeah, look I'd eat at the eyeball. <laughs> yeah. I'd eat the eyeball. Yeah, yeah I mean. Right. Because he's yeah. right, I'd eat the eyeball. <laughs> William, William, what are your thoughts? Refin, woman hater, woman lover. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think that for so long in his um, career, he women just weren't really on his radar. Good, yeah, um, good, good I think point. that they were just, just, just props, like you mm-hmm. said earlier. Um, they're there because they exist in a world, so they're going to exist in this movie. That's kind of like, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and I think that uh, Neon Demon really pushed him into a um, a place that he had never been before. And so he couldn't have done it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that Neon Demon was inspired by him uh, realizing that his um, wife was beautiful and yet he wasn't. He felt like he wasn't beautiful and he wanted to make I feel a movie that was deeply. about... <laughs> <laughs> He wanted to make a movie about beauty, and so he yeah. went with um, women. So I think from from a, a male, a straight male perspective, mm-hmm. um, 
saying, I want to make a movie about beauty. It's going to be about women. Um, There's something there right already. You're absolutely Um, right. But then, but then bringing in women and actually letting them, you know, have a say in what's happening changes that. And so there's, there's this, this this kind of um, uh, conflict between Mm -hmm. um, male, male, female energy uh, conflicting in the movie while at the same time working together to show something. It's, it's very, it's a very strange movie. Refn is tricky. (laughs) Refn is very tricky. And Um, what I go back to is like this idea, which we've seen play out a lot. Like I feel like the argument always comes down to like Marty Scorsese, right? mm. Which is like Anna Paquin's character didn't talk in the Irishman. So Marty Scorsese hates women, which is wrong fundamentally. But then, you know, when you look at something like Neon Demon, like all the stuff we've talked about has been like a lot of like production stuff, like William's point about like what drove the movie and then the discussion of like bringing in the like cast to further shape it and I think like the result just from like the movie itself is like these characters are so dynamic and layered and nuanced and they do so much because Mm -hmm. even like the quote-unquote like evil model characters right obviously have a friendship that's been shaped by like a couple years of shared experience they are, com- like, they are comrades in this they are in comrades this they are like, like side by side in this very fascinating yeah. loyal way up to that one point right and i think about like i think about like gina malone's character thinking that she's gonna take care of Elle fanning's character and she's gonna protect her from these like predatory male photographers and mm-hmm. so i just feel like everybody's getting a lot to do mm-hmm. and it is like Agreed. these very not one note like not one layered everybody mm-hmm. has something that they're doing and something that they're doing under the surface mm-hmm. and i just yeah. think this movie is very good at that sort of like tricky shifting ambition shifting mm-hmm. identity sort of idea and it just feels you know it just feels like he understands something about I whatever this might be controversial or whatever but in a lot of ways I hate the idea of like women should support women just because they're women like yeah. there's something about oh, that idea, idea that is like very limiting to me to me it's like the Taylor Swift feminism and yeah. it's very and as Taylor, Taylor Swift is my fucking number one I have a commissioned painting of Taylor Swift above my bed <laughs> and will fully acknowledge that that is like the biggest thing that she needs to let go that lingers yeah. from like a 16 year old her sort of right. like 16 year old year old perception of like you know like so and so said like after you know the joke about her at the golden globes like yeah. there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women that yeah figure that one out so i yeah. love that the movie i love that the movie doesn't do that it mm-hmm. makes an acknowledgement of like you would think that these women working in an industry where they're all subjugated mm-hmm. and all whims to idea of like male ideas of beauty and aesthetics mm-hmm. and all that stuff you would think like well, they might band together and they sort of do and mm-hmm. they sort of don't. And so yeah. I think it does allow for like a lot of complexity to the female experience and to the female identity that sometimes you don't get in other movies that are interested in these sort of topics. Sometimes you do just get that flat, well, like clearly all the women would be friends. Yeah. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. <laughs> clearly they're all going to girl boss together. Right. Yeah. Hashtag feminism. <laughs> I think this, I think we've established a lot of the great groundwork here. And that was the point of this episode, because the way the rest of this is going to work for our little mini series um, is we're going to tackle this scene by scene, not every scene, but we're going to take a selection of scenes that, that each of us love because there's so few words in this movie. It, they, they're very specifically chosen. And then they allow for a lot of thinking and conversation about everything that they leave in the space, the space around them. So we're going to go sort of with a select sort of greatest hit scene by scene breakdown of Neon Demon and and get more fully into the themes that we have laid out here. Um, I know personal favorites of mine are going to come up like the amazing um, I Can Make Money Off Pretty speech by Elle Fanning, the incredible bathroom confrontation between between (laughs) jesse and sarah our beautiful ghost sarah and of course (laughs) as roxana said are you food or are you sex um maybe one of the great questions in modern cinema Mm -hmm. and 
I will be fascinated to talk about that scene specifically and like the overarching movie. I will say I'll just tease a bit. I haven't even brought this up yet. But the fact that this came pre-reckoning, the fact that this movie came pre-reckoning of how we talk about women and sexual assault and and Weinstein and I think its timing in that way is vital to its existence as it is and the fact that it could exist at yeah. all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, we'll have more to come. If you guys would like to to tell people where to find you, if you're interested in that, or if you're like, no, I I don't want to engage with you further. Uh, I we can <laughs> leave it to sign offs. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm usually posting something thirsty or angry. <laughs> yeah. so it's Twitter, yeah. Yeah, it's Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Being being very Twitter on Twitter. Mm-hmm. William, where can people find maybe maybe your art, maybe your your comics work. You you were you you post excellent excellent little little bits it looks like in, in work teases of your work sometimes. Um there's places you want people to find that. Yeah, I think that you figured out my love of neon like the height of my love of neon demon because i kept posting art of abby lee yes! I, just, I keep drawing her i can't stop drawing her I from this movie she's one of them she's i will one day have a custom work of abby lee somewhere in my house like i, I just i need her face living in my home somewhere she's amazing she's yeah um, she's in, incredible <laughs> but uh, yeah i'm on all social media at william o tyler um and yeah i i just writing about movies and drawing movies and doing my own comics and stuff. All that stuff is available on my site. And I am Jordan Cruciola and you can find me on Twitter at Jorcru, J-O-R-C-R-U. And hey, Patreon, Patreon, if you're feeling it at patreon.com slash Cruciola, um, where you can help underwrite things like this. Um, This, I'm so, I had, as I was saying before to William and Roxanne, I had so much fun doing um the simple podcast i'm so excited to be doing that format again with this because it's one of it's one of my favorite movies ever i love this movie so much and there's just uh, so much of what you guys have said already has just made me even more excited to talk about this and so glad that we're doing it so um we're here we're gonna have a, a, a small slate of more episodes coming at you and i cannot wait to dig in further to this project with you guys ditto yep (laughs) All right. Bye, everybody. And we will surely be seeing you on the next episode. I don't want to be them. They want to be me.